Welcome to Breaking Silos. We are an interdisciplinary student-run podcast that exists to foster interdisciplinary development in higher education. We think that this goal can be achieved by breaking the academic silos and by showcasing interdisciplinary ideas, conversations, and by providing professional development for graduate students with the ultimate goal of preparing them for solving real-world problems in academia or industry. I'm your co-host, Prakrit, and I'm a graduate student studying neurobiology with a focus in genomics and i'm accompanied by my co-host scott who is a third year phd student studying high energy astrophysics well, and welcome to this episode of breaking silos we hope you enjoy this Hello and welcome to Breaking Silos and today we have another guest who, whom I again met um, in, in the ethics course. Uh, it was the same uh, workshop on our course with, that with Dr. Uh, William McCoy whose episode hopefully you have listened to by this time. But uh, I have with me Kyle Christensen who is um, just finishing his master's in the industrial and organizational psychology program on his way en route to a PhD in the same program. Uh, so a little bit about him. He got his undergraduate degree in psychology from Hendricks College. He got his, or he's doing his master's right now, of course. And his, he's a vice president for the Clemson Society for Industrial and Organizational Psychology. And he's also a member of the board of directors for an organization called the Interdisciplinary Network uh, Group of Researchers. So you can see why why we have him here. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, I had the amazing opportunity to be on a team, the same team that actually ended up winning that. Again, I'm not trying to like <laughs> promote that. Uh, that, that yeah, that won something. <laughs> but, uh, but it was truly, in, so I, like the things that he said made me think that, oh, he's approaching things, um, the things that we're going to talk about. Uh, in a very interesting way, and and that's why I invited him, and he, he also accepted. So thank you. Of course, for, for thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm honored and excited to be here. <laughs> we are very happy that you're here, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so I guess we, you know, we always start this podcast with a fun question. Right. So I know one of your research interests is is that you like creative problem solving, or mm-hmm. you help people and organizations achieve that. So I'm going to ask you either one of these questions. You're sure. welcome to answer either or both. And it's this, what's the most creative excuse you've made for not doing your homework in college or school or whatever? Mm-hmm. whatever? I know you've been a camp counselor, because your yes. LinkedIn tells me so, uh, or a TA or a RA. Uh, what are some creative excuses that you've heard your students make that you've mentored or taught? So you're welcome to answer either or both of them. Okay. Um, so I, I just started TAing this semester, so I haven't heard any creative excuses yet because oh. we haven't had any <laughs> deadlines. Um, I, I will use, it was a creative excuse that was used in high school. Um, so I, I'd like to think, and I can't remember a time when I didn't turn in homework, but I can definitely remember <laughs> times where I needed the morning that something was due to turn it in. So my, uh, my dad has a PhD in, um, in sociology. And so he, uh, he also worked in a company where he could work from home really, really easily. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes if I really needed the morning to finish something, I, like you know, he would just keep me back from school, take me later, and then would write a note saying that I had a doctor's appointment uh. because he has a PhD. So technically, not a lie. <laughs> I love it. Oh. Um, we 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 tried. You're lying. We, I mean, I, yeah, I was I was working in the same room with him, and we was an appointment. So, but um, we we tried our best not to use that one too much. I think I, we used it once, and my dad was like, "Yeah, we can't do that again." Mm. So maybe you but. should put that to the what's it called, the smart test, the 
Oh, it's smart, yeah, it's smart. What was it? Yeah, smart. I mean, star. 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 Oh, the ethical decision making. Yeah, okay. Decision-making. I think <laughs> smart, I think, is for smart goals. And then smart star. Goals, yeah, yeah, yeah. Star. Yeah, so. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Dr. McCoy. But, I totally remember you. <laughs> 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 I think you're the workshop. As a podcast episode. Yeah. Um, that's that's awesome. Cool. I guess I guess we can this maybe get into the questions, Kyle. Sure. Yeah. Well, so, so, Kyle, uh, I'm not in this area. That, that you're in. And I guess my first question would actually be, you know, people in a very general sense, people would say, you know, oh, physics is in the sciences mm-hmm. or sociology is maybe in the social sciences. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about this field you're in of industrial organizational psychology? Is that is that still, like, I guess a subset of psychology or is it, you know, does it somehow trend away from what people typically see as humanities or... Uh, I... Go ahead. I Sure, I would. I would still consider us very much in the humanities. We're, we're a social science, mm-hmm. absolutely, um, because most of what we deal with is trying to study people and processes that happen within and between people. So we're still using scientific methods, scientific um, evidence to make claims about that stuff, but it's still very much a social science. So, and, so can you give us an example of maybe uh, you know an experiment or you know one of these. Uh, uh, applications for maybe research that if you want to talk about your own research project that you're working on that's related to to this field this you know connection between these processes and people's psychology uh, sure um man where to begin i'm sorry i've i've i'm overwhelmed with the uh, the articles i've read over the last three years and like kind of the, the i'm trying to think of a good example of one um um, so we, we deal a lot with what are called latent constructs. Um, I'm not sure if you've heard of the term before, and it's, it's relatively jargony, but um, I think the social sciences are a little bit different because we are trying to measure things that are not directly observable. Um, and so a, like a, you could define a latent construct as something that we all know is present, either within a person or between people, like in a group of people, but we can't like directly see. So um, you could talk about trust within a team. You you know trust is there, but you, like at some ha- level of it. Right? At some it's level like of it, be an un- untrustworthy level. Of absolutely, trust, right? absolutely. Yeah. So it's absolutely there, but like we kind of specialize in like how do we operationalize that in a way that is measurable and testable, um, and you know reliable and valid. So and what, and what do you mean by operate? Sure, 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 sure. Yeah. So um, operationalized would be like. Uh, we come up with a defi- like an, uh, a definition of what trust means for the purpose of this experiment that is measurable. I so see. trust in and of itself, like you'll probably never fully understand that like you'll never get the perfect image of what the level of trust is on the team. But you can get some sort of um, like representation of it through a measure that you give. So, you, I mean, you can just ask people, like, how much do you trust your teammates? And, like, on a scale of 1 to 10 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so the number that you get, even if you average it for the team, it's a representation of the trust. It's not actually a true image of what the trust is. But that's the way that we're operationalizing it. And that might actually change, too, based on if it's trust as defined by uh, you guys running the experiment and trust as if you just ask them how much do you trust them sure right so that that's that those could be two separate measurements actually absolutely and, um, and researchers okay. often debate about like how to define these things and some people will put forward a new like a new way of thinking about trust or uh, like any kind of so like uh like you talk about conflict we could talk about um something called psychological safety which again jargony stuff so i'll try and stay away from it but it's um psychological safety has to do with um 
how it's like you you trust that your teammates won't chop your head off if you come up with a new idea, especially if that new idea may be counter to what you're doing. So Mm -hmm. do I feel safe sharing my ideas? Um, Again, like you can't directly measure that, but there are indicators that you can look at and say, based off of how these indicators look, we think that, you know, psychological safety is high or low or fine, you know. Oh, very cool. I I wonder if like interdisciplinarity as a concept does it? I mean, I, I don't know if there's like a metric for for measuring that. Like, I know you're like involved with things uh, related to that, but like, is is there a measure for interdisciplinarity? A measure, um, or a metric? Like, if see, I don't, I don't know. I could, we could think of maybe a couple off the top of our head. So, like, you could probably again, this would be like if we don't know, we could go through a process of operationalizing. Sure. So it'd yeah. be, um, we have a team of uh, it's like three people on this podcast. Okay. If we're trying to operationalize, like you are in one field, you're in another field, I'm in another field. So we could say we have three different fields represented. So like that's high interdisciplinarity. You could also say like, well, I'm in this college and maybe Procrit's in the same college, even though you're in a different major and then you're in a different college. So mm-hmm. you can group us together based on college and then you're in a separate college. And so like, again, you can kind of change how you want to define it. I, But yeah. again... Uh, actually, I want to I want to take a moment to say um, that I'm going to do my best to use evidence based uh, arguments, or like I'm trying to cite evidence as I talk about these things. But um, I have a, I have a background in science. I've been you know trained in the in the craft of science for a while, but I also have a background um, somewhat in uh, like clinical psychology, and I've you know I've shadowed therapists and stuff. And there are some differences that are based on experience. So I'll, I'll talk from experience as well as science. So That's great. if you're yeah. listening on the podcast and I say something that does not agree with some evidence that you found, that's fine. You're welcome to disagree with me. I'm happy to, you know, change an opinion. Um, but yeah, so I, I want to just put that out there that some of this stuff will be based on anecdotes and personal Absolutely. experience and stuff. So it's, it's not all going to be based in uh, scientific evidence and literature. That's really so. interesting. I, just, I think a lot about that, like, how do people think about their fields? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's inter- interesting that you said that. But I want to save that question for a little sure. bit later. And I wanted to ask you, we're talking about, you know, just like metrics of, of measuring something. Mm-hmm. One of the metrics that we talked about before we actually started recording was about this paper that came out in, in Nature. Sure. And it, it talks about, or it's, it's actually titled, um, I don't have the title in front of me right now, but um, it's basically talking about uh, the the disruptive science, mm-hmm. um, and and the metric that they have is I think they call it a, a disruptive index or a CD index, yeah. um, and it shows. Uh, I wish we could show figures on a podcast, but <laughs> we, we, but but it's basically sh- um, uh, showing on the x-axis there's there's like the different uh, from 1950s to 2010 sure. is on the x-axis on the y-axis there's just the disrupt- disruptive index and you can see that it's been falling since 1950s across sure. the social sciences um, stem uh, life sciences mm-hmm. and medicine uh, and that's true for all the major or all fields and and, and at 2010 it's almost become almost like zero it's almost becoming zero and, and the ones that are at the highest um, are, are social sciences, or in other words, they have the highest disruptive index. So that is very interesting. As of 2010, they have the highest out of all the fields? They've consistently been like at the top, so sure. I don't know if you can see yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, if you're uh, following... And yeah, we can include the, the, the paper. The paper. Sure, we should, we should sure. do that. But it's very interesting because it, it, it begs the question, um, like there are f- fewer papers, and again, their metric is, mm-hmm. is looking at disruptive papers, 
uh, like things which really change, like finding the DNA, you know, big, sure. big deal. Sure. has changed the face of modern medicine as we know it. Um, but so you shared with us that you're interested in creative problem solving. Absolutely. And, and defensiveness to change, which I sure. think is a very interesting <laughs> field to be involved sure. in. Um, so, so based on this paper and, and the fact that papers are not really shaking up a field as much, are there like, um, I mean, there are, there are many variables that can explain this, but what is your analysis of, of creative problem solving in, in academia, perhaps in your field, or just in higher education in general? Like, what's like your kind of meta-analysis? Are we really becoming less creative in our problem solving? Because, you know, we are, we're seeing so much advancement, uh, like the technologies that we use in just, in just my field has, has changed a lot, but... But what are we doing as thinkers, like, uh, and and especially in in, in an organizational way? Sure. Uh, what's what's that looking like according according to you? Oh, um, so I want to start off by talking about. So I, I think this is a great example of what an operationalization is. So defining how disruptive a paper is. How do you how do you go about doing that? These authors said, well, uh, we're gonna create our own index called CD. And I, I read the the methods pa- part of the paper. I haven't read the whole paper, but they basically said that. Um, a paper is extremely disruptive if it's like they they looked at papers five years after they were published mm. and they said that it's disruptive if uh, based on the number of papers that cite that paper that came out and do not cite predecessor papers. Right. Yeah. So mm. that's one way of saying that's operationalizing disruptiveness. Mm. Um, and I think they rated um, they rated all these papers on a kind of a continuum from disruptiveness to, um, oh, I don't remember the other word for it, but uh, it, it is like, collaborative is the wrong word, um, but it's, uh, and it's not cohesive either. Do you know, you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah, yeah. How, oh, Integrative, integrative. Sure, so yeah. disruptive to integrative. Um, I, I don't, I'll, I'll push back a little bit against the paper. Again, I haven't read the thing, so if, if they address these things in the paper, that's, that's fine. But I don't think, I think disruptiveness is, uh, and it may have an interesting tie-in to creativity, but it's an incomplete picture of what it Absolutely. actually is. So, um, and I also want to push back just from a theory perspective. Wouldn't we expect that over time, like I, I think it's not a bad thing that papers are becoming less disruptive because that means that we're standing on solid ground with the theories that have been built. Mm-hmm. And so naturally, if we're publishing more and more based off of theories that really work we're kind of saying we don't really need to rethink the foundational theories that we're using. Um, That may happen in the future. I think Um, there's probably also some system level stuff going into it with, uh, there's a big push, at least I know in the social sciences about, especially in the nineties, it was, if you wanted to get anything published in a top tier journal, it had to be deductive research that is supporting a theory. Mm. And so, can you define deductive research? Sure. Um, So most of what, if you wanted to get published, you had to most likely have uh, an empirical piece. So kind of looking at um, numbers and your your hypotheses had to be very much theory-based, which means you have to use papers that have been already published to publish your own stuff. And they wanted to, I mean, create a lot of evidence either arguing for or against these theories, which is in like, that's not a bad thing. Yeah. Um, but the opposite would be an inductive approach would be rather than coming in with a predetermined hypothesis based off of previous theory, you would go in and say, something's happening and we're not quite sure what it is and we know that current theory doesn't really address it, so we're going to just throw the chips out there, see where they lie, and then try and make sense of it after the fact. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and so there was a push for empiricism and trying to support current theory rather than publishing new theory. Um, and so like basically the deductive research that promoted um, supporting previous theory was rewarded in the fact that it got published. Um, so that may be another kind of reason that we're seeing this trend. But again, I don't necessarily think that it's a, a bad thing. I don't think we yeah, should necessarily be concerned. Absolutely. It's like additive um, research because yeah. you're, you're building up on what's already known. So I guess it's more inductive. In the, and I think the scientific method, like would you agree, Scott, like the scientific method, it's like building up on what, sh- what you're seeing and mm-hmm. observing it em- empirically and then kind of uh, making hypotheses based on what you see and kind of, like you said, throw your chips on the table absolutely. and see kind of you know what, what we end up, yeah. end up getting. So Yeah, I, I guess I didn't have the uh, opportunity to, to read the paper mm-hmm. so because I don't maybe that's their final point, though. Right? Sure. Like, so maybe they're not saying that this is a bad thing maybe they're saying it's a good thing and I apologize to our listeners for not having read it uh, <laughs> ahead of time but uh, uh, I'm gonna be honest I didn't read it <laughs> <laughs> jeez we're just outing ourselves right it's now. fine it's, it's still a fun it's still a fun topic to, to discuss yeah. So. yeah and I think what you guys are saying is is uh, is good because right you should be ever marching towards the truth right and mm-hmm. sort of chipping away and so if you're doing that it makes sense if you're disrupting the field uh, less. I think something that's interesting that I can at least maybe speak to is if on this uh, on this chart, if you go to the the physical sciences, um, there's a, a huge drop after you know it looks like the graph starts about 1940, mm-hmm. uh, 1945, which is the hydrogen bomb and the Manhattan Project, mm-hmm. and then you have uh-huh. nuclear physics, you have all this atomic physics that you know that's busting out uh, over and over again, you know uh, down. And, and that, you know, phenomenally changed the field of at least physics and then, you know, maybe some people's understanding in, in other fields. And so it's, I can at least say it makes sense why you have this massive crash sort of after this sure. this, this time point. Uh, and then uh, uh, at the same time, though, uh, you it's interesting that you don't see, you know, necessarily the biggest humps happening in the 90s with, sure. you know, microchips and all this other stuff. And so, yeah, I think um, I think what they might be getting at, though, is that this... There's sort of this, you know, cliche uh, in science that, you know, you doing something that nobody else has done before is what changes the field forever. And like, that's how, you know, like that, that this is where, you know, big leaps and bounds are made and that they might just be saying the ability to make a big leap and bound seems unlikely if this trend continues. And, uh, you know, and I think that in terms of like, oh, well, you know, uh, we've been working at least in physics on some problems for, you know, the last uh, 50 to 100 years. Mm -hmm. And so then you're saying, well, why? We just have made major progress in the late 1800s and early 20th century. And uh, it's curious to, you know, wonder why, um, you know, things might not be as disruptive later on. I can't speak for other fields. You know, Mm -hmm. you mentioned DNA and whatnot. Um, at the same time, at least you know in physics, when you have somebody named Albert Einstein show up, mm-hmm. and you know, uh, uh, the thing about studying physics really made me realize how smart this guy was. <laughs> that's, it's like everybody knows, like, oh, Einstein's smart, and then like you study a little bit of physics, and you realize like he published like some like three of his most important papers all in like the same year, mm-hmm. and it's just like wow. This but then the question is that. Did he have a question that he was like, you know what, this is completely unknown and I'm going to like just com- work on this and mm. change the field completely? Or was it just something that as he was doing his research, 
he built up towards it. Uh, like he kept finding finding stuff. Oh, I found found this, 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 and this is a question that remained unanswered. So how do you approach that questions? I think that's yeah. I, I, I don't know much about well, that. And, and and so you know, uh, and for that example, he basically said we've thought about these problems and I think they're wrong. And so the whole changing and almost philosophy of the field mm. changes. And so of course that's going to be disruptive. Absolutely. But you know this curve doesn't go back to 1912 sadly <laughs> or 1920. Uh, but the um, uh, th that still doesn't mean that now that we've had that breakthrough, that it makes sense that you don't have disruption, mm -hmm. you know. And so exactly as you were saying, Kyle, earlier that, you know, I think this actually points to a good thing uh, in that, you know, maybe you're building on things that are more true. Uh, but, you know, it is also can make you nervous uh, sure. because if people are just saying, well, I can only get things uh, that are true if they match previous things, you can sort of run into an issue of if everyone's doing something wrong, but Certainly. you just believe you're doing it right, you know, uh, you, you could sort of run into this, you box yourself in. And, and maybe that's where, you know, uh, our creative solutions, you know, uh, Prakrit's earlier question, do you think that they're dying or do you think it's just like, you know, you can still be creative, it's just not less, uh, not as much, uh, not as disruptive, excuse me. Uh, that's, that's a great point. It actually brings me to a point that I wanted to to talk about because I think um, you can still be creative in a, in a, the context of integration, mm. right? And that's that's when we're talking about inter interdisciplinary teams. Maybe like if we bring together people from different domains um, and who have different backgrounds, the theories or the the methods or whatever they're using to create new knowledge may be just like second nature to them in their their field. Um, but may be very foreign to someone who is in a different field. And so, uh, no, I'm, I'm getting away from the point, actually. Um, no, but it's, a, it's an important point. Like, I, I've taken classes with engineers, mm -hmm. and I've seen the way they think, and I'm, I'm a biologist by training, so yeah, sure. I know how we how we go about stuff. But engineers think outside the box like crazy. Mm -hmm. It's like it's like second nature to them, like you said. Sure. So that there is truth to that, at least, like, like I said, in my, in my experience. Uh, but not to say that other fields are not creatively thinking they're thinking um in so that's that's the point of this podcast right like sure. like different disciplines have different trainings mm -hmm. which uh, just train them to think a certain way um and and kind of like you said being in an interdisciplinary team allows you to to look mm -hmm. look in from a different uh, thought process so so that's that's the beauty of that but what what like what is your like specific interest as, as insofar as uh, problem solving is concerned and, and creative problem solving and I think mm -hmm. organizational things that is, is something that you are kind of mm -hmm. invested in so, so yeah, can you like share a little bit about that um, sure I can tell you a little bit about uh, some of the research that I do I, I think that may be a good a good way to, to look at this um, yeah, so uh, I'm working on a project right now uh, under my advisor Dr. Marissa Shuffler and we're looking at um, creative problem solving processes within teams mm. Um and so we basically just put together a group of three people. We give them a problem, and then we record them, like both visual, like visual stuff and audio, um, trying to solve the problem together and look at how they interact with one another um, to solve the problem. Um, the now, now I got to go into a little bit of the history of creativity. <laughs> I have um, to ask you this before you go there. Sure. When we were working in that team together, mm -hmm. was that part of like, were you like collecting data? No, I'm just kidding. I'm like, no, I mean, you're. Because, <laughs> okay, for context, 
we were we did that uh, ethics competition sure. together yeah. and we came into a lot of conflict <laughs> like yeah we did so we were like hitting a roadblock again and again and again so I was as you were describing that I was like maybe maybe like, <laughs> <laughs> maybe should like test us uh, sure. on purpose right now but anyway continue you were thinking no. about the history of the project sure um so Basically, for, for, for a common context, we can kind of talk about creativity in the same way. The The definition of creativity that I'm using, um, t- it talks about if we're t- thinking about how do we, again, how do we operationalize creativity? Mm-hmm. Um, lots of research has said that we should focus on creative outcomes. So don't look at how the team interacts and we just say, like, we can rate this product that a team comes out with or this an individual person comes out with as creative um, based on its novelty and appropriateness. So... Um, Again, uh, thinking outside the box, is it does does the product still fit the need that it was made for, and does it do so in a way that um, kind of uh, it go like it does so outside of what's like precedent? So, so it would, d- would it be like I don't know, you have a hundred people who are supposed to build some tool, mm-hmm. and you know, over fifty percent, or let's say sixty of them, do it in a certain way or take advantage of one type of mechanism yes and then the 40 percent or the you know 30 percent or whatever who remain they actually do a different way Mm -hmm. is that would you say that that 30 percent is creative because they don't do the go-to or majority way of solving sure some some mechanism especially if the like 50 or 60 or whatever if the majority of people are doing it in a way that they've kind of been trained to do that is Mm. like in line with uh, common knowledge or with like truisms about the field like this is just like it, this is just how we do this yeah. um, but then creativity comes in with uh, it, the, the novelty aspect is maybe it's applying something you already know in a different way but it, it, it requires you to change your perspective in some way um, so I, I got away from the, the project though but basically we're, we're interested in looking at creative outcomes so we can rate your answer to how you would solve this problem as like on a scale of um, appropriateness and novelty and then we can also look at um, what we're doing now is creative processes so teams tend to go through these kind of four stages of problem solving when they work together um, which I was able to see when we were working together Um, (laughs) so they and and they're again this is relatively straightforward I think it will make sense Um, but we generally start with problem construction so you start talking about what is the problem that we're trying to solve um, what what are the aspects of that problem? Like what's within the problem and what's outside the problem? So uh, I, I would love to give an example, but I can't think of one off the top of my head. But basically just coming to a shared understanding of what the problem is and what the problem isn't. And then you go... No, I think we can give an example like the Southwest. So, sure. So recently we had this ethics project that we were working on was about this company or this airline Southwest mm-hmm. who messed up big time, mm-hmm. uh, especially during Christmas travel. Um, Which I got caught up in. Yeah. <laughs> so it was very relevant. Yeah. Uh, so like massive cancellations, understaffed there, didn't didn't invest in their in their like operations and the scheduling system. Scheduling system mm-hmm. and all those things and, and this ended up inconveniencing a lot of people and uh, and they found themselves in some really bad situations. Yeah. Um, and, and to discuss this, we were in a team and we were looking at possible solutions mm-hmm. and putting them through those ethical tests. So that's mm-hmm. where, that was a place where we were looking for answers, but some people thought, oh, maybe this is the right, right approach, but some people, like, oh, maybe it's not the right approach mm-hmm. and maybe we should look at it this way. So that was 
Yeah, that was hard. That so we was... we can use that as the example. That's that's, that's good. Um, so I mean, the first thing we did there was we all read an article about what happened. Mm-hmm. So that's engaging in problem construction, and then we talked about okay, I think this is a problem, and I think this is a problem, and I think this is a problem, and then we all came to a shared understanding of what that is. Absolutely. Then we moved on to what we call idea generation, which would be um, let's start coming up with ideas like possible solutions, mm-hmm. and anything goes. Just put out some solutions out mm-hmm. there. Um, and then you move into idea evaluation and say, okay, the, we think these ideas or these solutions are better than others because of X, Y, and Z. And then um, during that, you t- normally go through like idea elaboration as well, which is tell me a little bit more about the solution. How would that actually work? How would how would that play out in this mm-hmm. scenario? And then you move on finally to idea selection, um, which is we're going to go with this solution yeah. because we think it's best. Thank God that we picked one because it was yeah. not looking good. Yeah. But that also brings up another point, which I, I know I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, Scott. Um, and that's about conflict, right? Yeah, Working absolutely. in interdisciplinary teams means it's almost obvious that it's going to happen. Uh, you think differently mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's going to clash somewhere. Sure. So how, how do we approach? How do we approach that for those who, who listen to this podcast with the hope of with the goal of learning how to engage in interdisciplinary teams, sure. ideas? Um, how does how does one problem solve in that context creatively? And, and also looking sure. at how to like manage conflict. Um, I, I've got like three kind of answers that that will get a different part of your problem. So, um, okay. <laughs> so we'll, we'll start with uh, from the team's literature. It's especially important to before you start working as a team, especially in, especially in interdisciplinary teams, where you may talk about you may have like the same word, but they describe very different things mm-hmm. based on your domain. We so talk about that a lot. Yeah. Uh huh. So it's called the the jingle and jangle fallacy. That's what that's what we use to describe it. But so you and I may use the same word to describe two very different things based yeah. on our fields, and we might use two different words mm-hmm. to describe the exact same thing. And so that's so interesting. It's it's difficult to kind of talk about that on the front end, uh, especially because you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. But at the beginning, when you're working with a team, you should do something called a team charter. Ah. Always do a team charter. Um, Can you talk about what that is? Is this a contract? <laughs> yeah, but, but, I mean, basically like a contract. But it's so I mean, everyone's had a a, a crappy team experience, oh, yeah. um, <laughs> and most of I, I think a lot of those things have to do with uh, miscommunications about what is expected of everyone. Mm. And so, I mean, there's a ton of, like, there's very, very accessible tools online. You can just look up team charter and it will give you an example. But, um, like, if we we're doing a team charter for class, we would say, okay, what we need to come to a shared understanding of what a good presentation would be, because that's what we were making. Mm-hmm. Um, we should talk about, how, like, how do I want to feel at the end of it? Um, what does good mean to me? So, like, do we want to make an A? Do we want to win the competition? Do we just want to turn something in? Mm-hmm. Um, and then we can put down contact information. We can say, like, I like I specialize in this area, so I think I would be good at helping with this part of the project. And you specialize in this area. Like, you did a great job with the design, way better than what I could have. Mm-hmm. And if we did a team chart at the beginning, we could, you could say, hey, I'm pretty experienced with putting together presentations, and I'm really good with the design process. And so we could say, oh, then that would be great. Then it also helps with something called task or role clarity, which again helps. But and then we can say like, you, this person will be turning it in at this point. This person's charge this. this part. So it, you can also talk about some of those jingle and jangle fallacy things there. I so that, yeah. do a team charter. That's please do a team charter. Um, <laughs> the second thing is I want to say that not all conflict is bad. Mm, um, absolutely agree. Yeah. So interpersonal conflict, if not handled well, absolutely is bad. Um, and then we can we can talk a little bit about how to handle that, and that's where my uh, experience in um, 
counseling and, and therapy kind of comes in. But uh, there's also some research that basically shows that there are, and this might be a little bit dated, but there's three different kinds of conflict that happens in teams. There's task conflict, where we don't agree about what we need to be doing. There's interpersonal conflict, which is, I don't like you, you don't like me, because yeah. one of us feels disrespected or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then there's process conflict, which we don't agree about our next steps. So we don't agree with how we should move forward with the project. Mm-hmm. Um, and task conflict is actually a really good thing, because it helps with problem construction. And it helps you to come to a more shared understanding. That's good. It can be difficult to engage in task conflict without people's feelings getting hurt if you're not careful about it or if you don't have baseline trust or psychological safety. So if I say, like, I don't really like your idea, Mm. um, you could take that as a personal attack, but it's not meant as one. It's just saying, like, I don't think that the idea that you propose Mm. fits what we need here. And so that that could be task conflict. Or, you know, again, if we disagree about how we want to go about this thing, if I say I don't really like this idea it's easy to interpret that as kind of a personal attack or, or just be like, Oh, you, you don't appreciate me or like my contribution isn't valued on this team or something like that. Um, so, and so I, uh, so I actually, in undergrad, I, I, uh, did an engineering major as well. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, when you were talking about this, uh, you know, a a few uh, minutes back about, you know, idea generation, absolutely. Then, uh, and that's where you just let anything fly, sure. and then you do idea ranking next. Mm-hmm. And what we what we learn, and what I found, uh, and you know, doing design projects or any mm-hmm. research projects, is having those steps be two separate steps, yes, and in that order is very important mm-hmm. because you you can minimize personal um, conflict when I come up with an idea, and then it just immediately is like, oh, that's not feasible. Yeah. Uh, and on top of that, you are more likely to squash creative, uh, possible alternative solutions mm-hmm. if you don't allow everything to go, or everything to be to, to, be, to come out. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I, I just wanted to mention that, that, that even yeah. in the field of engineering, it's the same approach where it's let anything come out, like just Absolutely. any idea you have, and then take some time and have some, you know, uh, additional perspective, and that and that probably you know has been developed one to generate more ideas, mm-hmm. but two to also you know minimize this. Oh, I just come up with an idea, and immediately somebody I don't really know, because if it's a new team, Absolutely. for example, shoots it down, then uh, you're more likely to interpret that as uh, a personal attack, mm-hmm. then, and less likely to share. Yeah, and then and then yeah, then you're less likely to share, and then there's less idea generation, and so yep. uh, you, you have a negative spiral. Yeah, but, that's, yeah, that's very interesting. Like I I mentioned this a lot. Anybody who knows me. Knows that I love talking about this. It's the ad hominem uh, fallacy. The ad hominem. Please explain. Yeah, where you like basically where you. Because Latin's not as good as yours. <laughs> <laughs> but I am. I, I sound pretty fancy, but I'm not. Uh, but ad hominem uh, fallacy is basically when you attack, not the argument, but the person. Oh uh, yes. Okay. And and I, and I think that's it happens a lot. Mm-hmm. So uh, for me in life and and in general in thinking wise, like you know, like shooting down creative ideas. Uh, it can feel a lot like the ad hominem uh, fallacy sure. where, where you're attacking the person. Uh, and again, maybe because of ego issues or whatever. I, I'm not a psychologist, but, but on a very <laughs> basic... But you're a person who's worked in a team before, and I get... Yeah, yeah. The armchair psychology is fine for being a team member, as long as you know a little bit and you're willing to admit you're wrong. Anyways, sorry, yeah. I'm cutting you off, but please. No, no, I think I just wanted to like put that out there because I think sometimes it helps you to reassess what, what you're actually doing. Are you actually... 
I'm like setting expectations for example mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of what team charting sounds like to mm-hmm. me I was an RA so like uh, what we do in the beginning is we do roommate agreements you know we absolutely decide what we want to do or what, what we want this to look like mm-hmm. so we when conflicts arise when your alarm goes off and you don't turn it off mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> I want to like, kill you for that yeah <laughs> like you know how do we how do we deal with that situation or if you like leave the rooms not clean or if we're rooming and I say I want a clean room and you say I also want a clean room but what if our <laughs> definitions of clean don't meet exactly. they're not the same yeah, yeah exactly so so while while those things are having that team charting thing and, and realizing um, uh, like you're not attacking the person just because you mm-hmm. have some issues with them uh, or yeah. they said something to you so yeah. I think that, that's been helpful for me as well. uh, yeah. and so do you actually want to mention I guess for uh, interpersonal issues sure. in the workplace or on a team sure you know what uh, what would you give advice on you know Sure. Uh, uh, of, you know, you have a bad boss, or you know, you, know, you have the annoying coworker, uh, and that's an important question because a lot of our listeners are going to be graduate students. Mm-hmm. Probably will have conflict with their advisors. Probably will have uh, conflict with people in their classes or their teams, which we've already gotten gotten into. So how does how does uh, I think team charting is helpful? But I think it's more to add that. Yeah, and I, and I just want to clarify, I have a terrific advisor. Sure, sure. I love my advisor. Just an example about you know. So I, I, it's funny. I still don't really see grad school as like the real world. It's I call it fantasy land uh, because you know, uh, you know, you get paid to do things nobody else cares about really. Uh, but like uh, you know, that I was talking about you know the tropes in industry. You sure. go out and you work. And yeah, it's uh, you don't necessarily have a shared background in everything. Sure. So, um, I'll plug a little bit more and say that uh, people tend to handle interpersonal conflict differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, some people say like, "Hey, I'd rather hash it out. Let's have a conversation." And some people say like, "I would rather this kind of go through whatever." Like, if there's a formal structure in place, so, like I issue a complaint that goes to my manager and the man- manager. So, like, people basically have different st- like conflict management styles, and you Absolutely. can talk about that in your team charter. So you can say, if I have a problem with you or something that you're That's doing, yeah. how would you like me to handle that with you? Mm. And it is important to you that I remind you that when we're going through idea generation stuff, it's important to me that I, I remind you that I really appreciate your input, that we're just going over problems or like we're just looking at the task. Mm. So that stuff you can do on the front end to anticipate that. So it's really important that your team charter is thorough. Right, yes. That if, it, if it's missing, you need like a lawyer almost. Yeah, <laughs> plug, plug all the holes yeah, that, you, that you might have issues with. Yeah, I, it is, but I also don't want to stress people out and say like you have to have the perfect team charter. There are always going to be things that pop mm-hmm. up that you can't plan for. So the team charter is just a tool that can be helpful to minimize those things that you can't plan exactly. for. Exactly, yeah. Um, but I, I, I kind of go into, especially from the, the, thera- the therapeutic background, It's um, I call it finding the essence. Mm-hmm. So... Um. Uh, gosh, I wish I would have had a good example for this too. Um, but if if I if you're being like aggressive towards me in especially in a team setting, and you, or you're being difficult with me, mm. um, it might not be about what we're actually talking about right now. It might be that you have felt disrespected by me for something in the past. And so the the issue isn't like if we're debating about ideas and you're shooting down my ideas just because I am proposing them and you don't like me. Mm-hmm. The issue isn't that you don't like the ideas, right? And so you have to. Uh, I wish I had a better example, and it, it comes a lot more from um, well, like couples therapy. It's just but the, the root of the problem. Absolutely, you're really getting at. Absolutely, yeah. it can be really difficult if people are if you know emotions are high, tensions are high. It can be really oh, yeah. difficult to work with someone. And say, where is this coming from? What is the root of the problem? Like, 
do you feel disrespected? Is there something that I did? Is there something that I said? Because it, it can get messy, and especially if it goes unaddressed, the feelings only increase intensity. Exactly. Um, but it's also multifactorial because absolutely. it might not even be between the people involved. It could be external sure. factors that sure. we don't even know about. Like, what is the person going through in their own life? Absolutely. So, uh, but I love that framework of, of having some methods or means uh, to employ mm-hmm. when, when you do come across a conflict and how exactly you're going to tackle that. Yeah. That's, that's great. Um, I know, yeah, Scott, you have yeah, another yeah, question. Yeah, so uh, well, I guess unless you wanted to, if there's more you wanted to, to mention about that. Last, my, my last point is actually a, a lesson that I was taught by my father. Um, it was about the, the importance of forgiveness. Mm. Um, I haven't read much about this yet, but I've seen it play out at least in, in my life. So being able to move move on past the conflict that happens in an amicable way mm. and, and kind of leave the feelings in the past. Um, and it's, it's, it's kind of funny. I, I remember even in elementary school, my dad taught me that like there's a, he came up with kind of a formula for how you need to apologize, especially if you're in the wrong. Oh, I think I know this. Okay. Have you, have you heard it? Is, I, it, is it the three things for yeah. apology? Yes. I, I'm, I have never come across anyone who had ever known, but let's see if they're the same three. So you need to say, I'm sorry. You need to like say you're sorry for what you did. So own what you did, say the, what you did, and then you need to ask for forgiveness. Is those, are those three? Okay, so slightly different mind. Okay. So I, it was, you apologize, you mm-hmm. admit your mistake, uh-huh. and you ask them how can you make it right in the future, if you can make it right. Some things Great. you can't make right, Great. but others you can. Absolutely. Uh, that's, oh, that's such a good point too. Moving forward, like that's, again, the problem solving stuff. So like, hey, in the future, I don't, I don't want to offend you again, or I don't want to. I don't want to engage in this kind of interpersonal conflict again. Um, what can I do better, or what can we do better? How yeah. can we interact better? How can we change the structure of the team? How can we? How can I communicate with you better? Um, so yeah, absolutely. That's that's super important. Yeah. But the the oh, asking for forgiveness, I think, is 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 important. And just saying like, hey, I messed up. I'm really sorry that it ended out this way. Um, Absolutely. Can you forgive me? And I, I would really like to move forward. And so I'm curious what you think about this. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the TV show Curb Your Enthusiasm. I'm not sure gotcha. if you know the show. Uh, I've seen a couple episodes, so but we, Yeah, Seinfeld, but Larry David, yeah. and uh, uh, he's kind of just a troll, I guess, at the end of the day. <laughs> but, uh, you know, in one of the episodes I recently watched, uh, he believes that your I'm sorry or your thank you should be uh, commensurate with the degree of the fault that you had or the good thing that you did. Mm. Do, you, do you agree with this, right? If, so if I'm like, you know, I think the example is um, Lin-Manuel, uh, writer of Hamilton, has him have his, you know, cousin stay at his place and he just goes, oh, thanks. And then, you know, just keeps working. And Larry gets super upset because he's like, whoa, I'm like taking your family into my home for like a week. And I would expect a bigger thank you from uh, from you. Uh, and then, you know, of course, it just creates conflict because that's sure. the whole point of the show. Yeah. But uh, so I'm curious, do you think that this is a real thing, though, that people, you know, actually would feel, uh, you know, slighted if, you know, they're not given a, a, you know, a true thank you or, you know, uh, the I'm sorry where it's like, I don't know, I have siblings, I don't know if you do, where it's like, yep. my parents made one of us apologize to the other. Yep. And sometimes you know that there's a whole lot of crap <laughs> in that I'm sorry, you know, uh, they just get away with something. And so, you know, I'm, I'm curious what you think from, you know, a, a more uh, academic standpoint is, oh, man. Uh, you know, especially maybe applied to teamwork. Like, do you think that you should kind of scale your uh, thank yous and I'm sorry's? Um, I think absolutely you should take the context into consideration. Mm-hmm. Um, if I bump into you and I say I'm sorry, like hey, sorry, like that's yeah, yeah. that's fine. If I kick your dog and I go hey, sorry, 
Like that's that's not gonna exactly. So exactly. so I I get the the scalability thing, but I think I don't know if like if I kick your dog and then I send you like an edible arrangement. I again I, that may be overkill. So I think it's more about making sure again kind of finding the again finding the essence, but it's making sure that the uh, the apology is sincere. Because I think I, I think the sincerity is the thing that may be missing, especially with the kid. Like I have to say sorry, but I don't actually mean it, and you know they don't actually mean it. That I, that that's not a true sorry, and I think that leaves a lot of lingering feelings. Um, so the yeah, the kind of the authenticity of the apology, and yeah, I I think it's up to the person who is hurt to kind of determine if they're willing to accept it, but. There's probably some scalability that we could. So I see, talk but about. but what matters probably more is, is sincerity. Yeah, absolutely. Right? I, oh, I okay. think. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that, that that's a good answer. And 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 a willingness to work on the problem and admit fault. I I would mm. add those two in. I see. So that's, that's good. good. And so uh, I guess uh, you are uh, pretty passionate about interdisciplinary research. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I I've been told that you're a member of the board of directors for an organization called the Interdisciplinary Network of Group Researchers. I am, yes. And so uh, can you talk a little bit about this group? You know, I know it promotes communication across fields and sure. advances understanding about, you know, group dynamics. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing is this related to your research then, uh, this this group? Yeah, so a lot of the professors with whom I collaborate uh, based on, like, helping out with my advisor with mm-hmm. – um, they're they're basically all members of the board or have been members of the board of of, of what we call it in group, which is we've realized it's kind of a horrible name because we want to expand the bounds and we want to include yeah. way more people, but we call it in group, which is yeah. seems exclusive, you know, kind of exclusive. But um, yeah, I, I I think there there's room for interdisciplinarity within almost every domain. And there, there's a pretty seminal article that came out, at least it's pretty seminal in, um, in the realm of IO psychology and management, but that basically says that the impact of journal articles tends to increase the more interdisciplinary they are, quote unquote, and the more people who you have working on it. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, it was trying to promote teams of researchers publishing rather than individuals publishing, which you can still do, um, but basically saying that like the, the most impactful research tends to come from interdisciplinary teams. Um, and there's special considerations that you have to have when you're working with an interdisciplinary team because there's more room for failure, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but InGroup is a, is a really cool organization. I'm, I'm, I feel very fortunate to be serving as a student member on their board. Um, uh, they're very welcoming, very accepting. I, I kind of describe. Um, they have a conference that happens every year, and please, if you're at all interested, I'm actually it, here. Yeah, I'm here I, to recruit y'all. Actually, yeah. this one. Because <laughs> I, I looked this up, I looked up your name, and I think you hosted one in Greenville recently. Yeah, yeah, we had a, a student workshop. Is the oh, is the developing scholars workshop we hosted in Greenville? It was a, a weekend where we had, I mean, um, some some relatively prominent members of uh, the industrial organizational um, community, as well as from management. Um, we're pretty IO heavy. IO is the, the acronym that we tend to use, but we're pretty IO oh, and I management see. heavy. So we're wanting a lot more people from, uh, like, I mean, probably your domains as well. I mean, domains outside of that. Can you talk about why do we need industrial and organizational psychology? What's why should one care about it? Why should one care about organizational yeah. psychology? I know what it is, but I'm not trying to like. <laughs> no, no, no. But I, I would yeah. love to banter and bicker about it because if you if you if the, if the group is interdisciplinary in, in its in its scope, mm-hmm. then I guess it's helpful to know why must one have that. Uh, 
and I think before you even explain that, I sure. think anybody who's about to become a leader in anything mm-hmm. must have some understanding of industrial and organizational psychology. That's I, that's I, what I understood. I I think it can only help. Yeah. I don't think you. There are some people who s- some of these things just come kind of naturally to, and they don't need to understand it. They don't like they don't need to read the literature on it. Sure. It's like the way that they tend to interact with people just happens to line up with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that if you are, if you have questions about how to lead teams, how to be a better team member, how to set up like positive work environments, how to promote creativity, how to even like set up benefits so that your employees feel that they are uh, valued in, in any kind of way. I mean, anything that has to do with being a member of an organization, regardless of if it's a business or not, um, you there's probably some research within industrial organizational psychology that can point you in a direction or give you kind of a hint. Yeah, that sounds really um, interesting. Are there any classes that you've particularly enjoyed at Clemson that are... Uh, Ooh, yeah. Um, I, I mean, if, if you're interested in this, I would highly recommend you take just... The, we have an organizational psychology class that... Um, it's, it's a nice survey class, kind of intro level that... Uh, that really helps with a lot of this stuff. Um, and then one, one, well, again, it depends on your interest because IO psychology, well, you can apply it in a lot of different ways. The the areas tend, like the classes tend to become relatively niche. Um, so I would say just kind of follow what your interests are. Are you interested in training evaluation? Are you interested in how we can, like, you know, selection processes? So, like, making sure that we're getting the right people for the job. Are you interested in, like, work-family balance? Are you interested in well-being in the workplace? There's classes for all these things. Um, But I'll I'll tell you, the one that surprised me the most was my personnel psychology class, which which is the the I side of IO psychology. Uh, But it has to do with selection processes, training and development, promotion, and then turnover. Uh, And I was like, this is the most boring part of IO psychology. I don't care. Like, I don't care about selection at all. And by the end of the course, I was like, no, no, this is the foundation of how we, how, I mean, how you build, like it's, it's the, it's the building blocks of how we do almost anything. And yeah. this, this stuff, this stuff really helps. So I was pretty changed after that. And I was like, yeah, I was pretty into the, you know, just organizational side. And after that, I was like, no, I see the importance of all of it. I get why they're grouped together. So is, is there a good, uh, has a professor in IO written a like a layman's book that you that you know so many uh, so many you can maybe even talk about the club that you're the vice president of uh if yeah yeah so um i'm a the vice president of the clemson society for industrial industrial and organizational psychology um with the it's called csyop and Sci like the society for io psychology psyop which is like the international program it's um, psychological, psychological <laughs> operations, or like yeah, <laughs> yeah. The Society for Industrial and Organizational Psych. They they put on like the big conference uh, that everyone goes to. Like, but they're like so we we are like the Clemson chapter of it essentially. Mm. So just a professional organization that provides um, students with resources. We do like the new student orientation. Uh, my job specifically as a vice president is to bring in guest speakers who can help to supplement um, some of the learning that all, all of our students go through. Um, so if you're interested, we're always looking for new members, and we you can join in on any of. We have a bunch of First Friday events. Um, you can reach out to me. I don't know if you can include my contact information. In, in I this. can if you would like. To. Absolutely, yeah. 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 You, you feel free to reach out to me at, at my email. At my email for yeah. sure. Um, <laughs> uh, but I would also say the there's a really interesting podcast as well called Work Life with Adam Grant. Mm. Um, okay, I will say this: if you go to his Twitter, everything is retweeted is from this person. Continue. Me? Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm not on Twitter too much, uh, especially as of recently. But I, I like a lot of what Adam Grant does. There's a little bit of controversy about him because he is probably the most famous industrial and organizational psychologist. Um, but that I think some people are concerned about him not having the like literary contributions necessary to be. But he's he. I think he's a very good public face for it and makes all this stuff very accessible. So. The podcasts are super interesting, um, and I think they can help to spark you to kind of start asking some questions that you may have already had or you may not have already had, but it's a nice nice intro to um, IO Psychology. So that's what I would recommend. That's good. That's good. Well, and I have one more question that sure. uh, for graduate students, you, for know, graduate uh, students. you know, you sort of uh, begin to really narrow down your focus, mm-hmm. and uh, I guess I was thinking about it, you know, the degree of interdisciplinarity you know, it's quite different, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you could you could say, oh, if you don't include someone from, you know, life sciences and social sciences, it's not really interdisciplinary. But you go in any field and you realize that, yeah, that subfield and mm-hmm. just having people next door to you and your neighbors uh, and neighboring fields mm-hmm. is, you know, basically interdisciplinary, yeah. especially for projects that you can, you can work on. Um, but, you know, as we're getting trained as graduate students to be scientists, to be professionals, uh, what would you say are some key, I don't know, points of advice or things you would say that we should work on to, to you know, develop our uh, interdisciplinarity um, uh, background or, or that could be helpful, especially from your training in, in uh What will make an industrial and organizational psychologist's life easy when we do come into <laughs> the industry? <laughs> I, think, I think every professor would love to answer that question. Yeah. So. Um, what would make an IO psychologist's life easier coming into it? And what we can we what can we do for leading up to that as graduate students? Mm. Um, listen to this podcast. Yeah, sure. Listen, <laughs> listen to this podcast. Uh, Share it with your friends if you like it. <laughs> <laughs> can that can that be my answer? Just listen to this podcast. No. Sure. Um, I think uh, my. My advice would be just in, especially in grad school, if you're wanting to broaden the perspective, especially if you're wanting to hear from people or make connections with people outside of your own domain, mm-hmm. just invite people to coffee. There's so many grad students at Clemson and you're like, it's such a unique opportunity to be surrounded by so many people who are so interested in so many things and they're kind of readily accessible. Um, and I think that's a cliche maybe, but every grad student is just eager to talk about the research that they're doing because they're pretty excited about it. Yeah, that's true. So it, it doesn't get a lot to start, like, get them start talking. I've been talking your ears off for the last, I don't know, 45 minutes to an hour. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> that's fantastic, though. I'm loving it. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm always happy to talk about this stuff. And not everyone will be like that, but I, I would strongly encourage people to, if you're ever in a class with someone, especially some of the survey classes where you get some people from like kind of outside of your your major or whatever it may be, just invite them to coffee or or if they don't drink coffee, just find some other, <laughs> invite them to a conversation yeah. and just pick their brain, like just like y'all are doing, just pick their brain for a little while because this kind of the, the informal conversations tend to bring about the, oh, that's a really interesting way that, to think about that. I kind of think about it in this completely other way, but I can see how that one serves you. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, so it can help to broaden your perspective, especially about the problems that you've been so honed in on. Um, yeah. So I think that'd be my, my, my biggest recommendation to, to graduate students. Um, yeah. And 
if you want to make IO psychologists' life easier, <laughs> you can hire us. <laughs> <laughs> you can hire us, and we will talk your ear off about all the things, like any kind of yeah. problem that you well, have. We'll, we'll the future is so. supposed to grow by nineteen percent in the year twenty twenty four. Is what that psyop video told me. Yeah, so. absolutely. We're uh, we're not short on demand. I'll tell you that's, that. We're that's, pretty excited about that's it. Good. Um, yeah. Well, I think we hit the hour mark. Great. So. Uh, I know a lot of our listeners have requested a shorter episode, <laughs> but this was good. I think everybody will benefit a lot listening to this entire thing. But thank you so much for your time. Really Absolutely. appreciate it. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you for yeah. having me. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was. We truly learned a lot, and okay. um, and yeah, thank you so much for listening. And we will catch you on the next episode. Uh, and yeah, thank you so much. We'll see you next time. <laughs>